Special thanks to Jonathan Detman, Darius, and Blaine Bootsy for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The global pandemic has hit our day jobs hard. This is now our full-time jobs. If you want great content and can afford a few extra bucks, consider becoming a Southpaw supporter on Patreon. If you want to show everyone else your solidarity, we now have an online store full of Southpaw swag. You can find links to both our store and our Patreon at southpawpod.com. When it comes to left media, we cannot exist without your support. This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Fight Study. Pillow fisted, choke artist, overrated, not championship material. Michael Bisping has heard it all. Despite all his talents, it seemed at one time Bisping will remain a top 10 contender that would be good enough to give anyone in the division a tough time, but remain short of becoming the 185 pound king. As a middleweight, Bisping would build up a nice win streak, only to lose to a top contender right before what seemed like a title shot. Before his title run, he was stuck alternating wins and losses, further cementing himself as a gatekeeper for the division. But in 2016, a series of fortunate events culminated with Bisping winning the middleweight title and defending it. The UFC had its first British champion. How was Bisping able to do all this in the twilight of his career? A lot of things had to line up for Bisping to win the title. First, he had to beat Anderson Silva to continue his win streak and start off 2016 on a high note. Then, he had to accept a short-notice matchup against then-champ Luke Rockhold, who had previously choked him out in two rounds. Finally, Dan Henderson had to win his fight emphatically against Hector Lombard, something completely out of Bisping's control. If any one of these events hadn't played out exactly as they did, it's possible Bisping never would have won the title or successfully defended it. The fact that he snatched the title from Rockhold and defended it against Henderson is poetic justice, given that both men hold memorable wins over him. Before we examine his banner year, let's do a deeper dive into what Bisping does well, where he fell short, and how he seized the opportunity of a lifetime and made the most of it. A once promising fighter on the English circuit with a kickboxing background, Bisping made a stateside debut as a participant on The Ultimate Fighter Season 3. With the victory over Josh Haynes in the finals, Bisping made history as the second light heavyweight winner of The Ultimate Fighter and the first British fighter to do so. Undefeated and with the UFC eager to capitalize on the UK market, Bisping was groomed and protected with carefully selected matchups and was put on cards mostly in England. Despite his undeniable skill set, his personality and trash talk rubbed a lot of fans and fellow fighters the wrong way. His critics were eager to see him lose, and the more often he faced top competition, 
the more these people got to see their wish come true. This didn't mean he didn't put up a good fight. The most important striking arsenal of Bisping early on was his volume jabbing. Much like the Diaz brothers, Bisping believes in racking up as many punches as possible to build up his offense and overwhelm his opponents as time ticks on. Bisping's jab in particular is the key to his success. The strike itself wasn't thrown with precision nor with power, but it was consistent. If there was even a moment where the opponent's hands strayed away from defending their chin, Bisping's jab was there. Even though the threat of a knockout wasn't present, the jab was a clear problem. Instead of a clean decapitation by one katana slash, you got death by a thousand cuts. Bisping's jab is non-committal and comes at his opponents quicker than anticipated. One of the things that Bisping has never been accused of is sloppy movement, and he's disciplined when it comes to shifting his weight and not leaning too forward, always staying over his hips and not lunging face first onto attacks. The jabs are accurate and thrown with minimal effort. This economy of motion allows him to throw them endlessly. All this leads to a vicious cycle of him piecing up opponents with this singular attack. In their fight, Kung Lee wore the damage of Bisping's jab on his face. Lee was convinced that he had been eye-poked, but the replay showed that it was the accurate jabs, not foul play. If you go back and watch Bisping's fight against Chris Lieben, Jason Miller, and Yoshihiro Akiyama, it's clear that he thrives when opponents try to walk him down. Since the jabs don't feel powerful, opponents feel comfortable walking through them to close the distance and land their own punches. They don't realize that the volume adds up and Bisping finds new ways to hit them with his hands. Against Miller, Bisping's jabs fell short as Miller slipped inside, but this gave him an opportunity to grab the back of Miller's neck and throw uppercuts and body shots. Lieben was content swinging hooks and walking forward expecting to get jabbed, only to crash into right straights and uppercuts. Akiyama also charged at Bisping in a straight line, only to get hammered with combinations and right-hand leads. It's clear that Bisping can strike, but it didn't mean that there weren't glaring weaknesses in his game. A huge defensive problem for Bisping, however, was bringing his hand back low after the jab. When your hand dropped down and your shoulders remain low, you're inviting your opponent to counter as soon as you're done with your attack. Whenever Bisping is hurt with punches, it's a strike that lands over the top of his jab or as he withdraws his lead hand. This happened against the likes of Akiyama, Jorge Rivera, and Alan Belcher in fights that he was clearly winning. This issue is compounded by Bisping circling to his left when he jabs. If you remember Bisping for anything prior to his reign as champion, it's probably from the overhand right that Henderson landed as Bisping circled to his left. This wasn't a one-off gaffe, but a habit. It doesn't help that the majority of Bisping's defense when hit isn't to clinch up or circle out, but to extend his arms out in the hopes of creating distance. If you have your hands out, opponents can duck under for a takedown or swing hooks and overhands with no repercussions. Bisping's jabs might be his preferred offensive weapon, but it was also his go-to when it came to defense. The problem with this approach is that jabbing loses a lot of its potency when moving backward, and opponents are glad to take one to land a much harder strike. Power can be generated by either planting your feet and throwing, 
or timing your opponents as they're attacking. Spamming punches hoping it deters the opponents is a great way to get hurt, and Bisping found this out too often. Something had to change. What seemed to help Bisping a great deal was when he left the comforts of his home country and made the permanent switch to California. After bouncing around different gyms, he settled into a nice groove with Jason Perillo, a boxing-based striking coach who had also worked with the likes of BJ Penn, Rafael Dos Anjos, and Chris Cyborg. Things didn't improve overnight, but one match at a time, it was clear that Bisping's punches were tightening up and a lot of his basics were being retooled. One of the things that Perillo made sure to work on was Bisping's left hook. Despite being left-handed, Bisping was taught to strike orthodox and keep his dominant hand forward, a la Oscar De La Hoya and Miguel Cotto. Many of the criticisms that Bisping faced was that he lacked power in his right hand. But this could very well be due to it not being his strong side to begin with. By further developing his left hook, Bisping was sharpening up a key striking tool that could be used to follow his usual one-twos. This isn't a problem limited to Bisping. George St. Pierre, Gilbert Melendez, and Henan Barrao were all champions who had great one-twos but always got clipped during exchanges due to not following this up with a hook to discourage counters. The left hook isn't without its risks, but it did help Bisping quite a bit. After managing to put together a two-fight win streak and making it through 2015 undefeated, Bisping got to headline a card against Anderson Silva in his home country of England. Even though this opportunity came after Silva's long reign as middleweight champion and when Bisping was in the latter stages of his career, it was still a major milestone for Bisping. During Silva's title run, Bisping has always claimed that he was a bad style matchup for Silva and all he needed was an opportunity to prove his point. While neither men were in the prime of their careers during this fight, it turned out Bisping was right. He was indeed a bad matchup for Silva. Bisping's volume striking, combined with a solid fainting game and constant movements, gave Silva more trouble than people thought. Bisping's ability to feint while pressuring Silva against the fence had him whiffing on counters and unable to respond in time. The non-committal jab that had been a staple of his career did a wonderful job of bothering Silva and kept him from resorting to his usual head movements and slips to escape danger. Along with the very kicking game, Bisping kept Silva from throwing effective counters and slowed his reactions. Working with Perillo also helped Bisping stay on top of his feet and always followed up his attacks with a defensive movement, an outside slip, ducking out of the way, or framing his forearm against Silva's shoulders, all of which made it difficult for Silva to attack. While in his corner after the first round, Silva realized that Bisping wasn't going to tire and he was going to have to force an unwanted reaction out of Bisping. This resulted in Silva making the same uncomfortable choice as he did in the Weidman fight, taking the lead. Bisping had been doing great with the jab, stepping inside of the southpaw Silva's fleet foot to shorten the distance and land quicker. While moving forward and hoping to catch Bisping by surprise, Silva was clipped with a couple of decent shots and dropped by none other than the left hook who was the pillow-fisted striker now. Even though Bisping was dropped late in the third round by Silva after what he thought was a break in the action, it shouldn't take away from the fact that Bisping controlled most of the fight. 
Silva tried to lure Bisping into attacking him by dropping his hands from time to time, but he didn't bite. Instead, he stuck to the game plan and kept up the volume while managing to hit and not get hit as often. It was clear that even if they had met in 2012, Bisping's style of striking was going to give Silva fits no matter what. Although he didn't get a title after beating Silva, he was soon given the opportunity, albeit under less than ideal circumstances. Luke Rockhold was slated to defend his middleweight title in a rematch against Chris Weidman at UFC 199, but an injury suffered by Weidman forced him off the card. With the event less than three weeks away, the UFC needed a middleweight that they could justify headlining a card against Rockhold without too much outrage. Bisping had recently beaten a former champion and could talk a good game, so why not finally give him his title shot? With 17 days notice, Bisping started the shortest fight camp in his career with the biggest stake on the line. For a fighter who had a long documented history of overtraining, this might have been a blessing in disguise. Since he was a last minute replacement, Bisping was free from the pressure of having to overthink scenarios and relied on his most trusted weapons, volume striking and his now dangerous left hook. Against a southpaw like Luke Rockhold, the left hook became Bisping's secret weapon. Even though the right cross is the preferred method of beating a southpaw striker, it's predictable and easy to evade. The southpaw can parry the rear hand, slip out the way, or even duck down and attempt a takedown. But when it comes to the hook, it can slip through the southpaw's defenses while they're preoccupied with the right hand. In open stance, orthodox versus southpaw, the hook remains hidden behind the southpaw's right shoulder until it's too late. There's a strong argument that Rockhold figured that the Bisping that he fought in 2014 was the same one he was going to be facing at UFC 199. What he didn't account for were all the defensive improvements that Bisping had been making. Instead of panicking when pressed forward, Bisping could now slip and return fire. Bisping's counter right straights, left hooks, and head movement that he showed against Silva should have concerned Rockhold. Alas, Rockhold was expecting to be chased so he could land his own check hooks and make Bisping pay. In the rematch, Bisping fainted a lot more. Rockhold still wasn't worried. He was leaning back and looking to swing his own hooks, even though most of them missed. Since he wasn't chasing after Rockhold and getting kicked by his rear leg, Bisping made Rockhold come towards him. Rockhold's counter right hooks are great as a defensive weapon, but they're not the best offensive tools. By the time Rockhold decided he wanted to exchange punches, Bisping had already figured out that Rockhold retreated at an angle with his back slightly exposed, giving him the perfect angle to throw the left hook. Like clockwork, Rockhold missed the jab and then ducked down to his left to protect himself from a counter with his hands low. After doing the same thing one too many times, Bisping caught Rockhold clean with the left hook, dropping him once before following up again with the same combination, knocking him out for good. It's great to win the title against a cocky rival in your adopted home state, but what could be even better than that? How about making your first title defense against an even bigger rival in your home country? Bisping got that wish against Dan Henderson at UFC 204 in Manchester, England. In the same card that Bisping won the middleweight title, Henderson rallied back against a tough Hector Lombard and finished him in the second round. Even though he wasn't on a win streak or even had a consistent winning record, Henderson was set to retire soon 
And since the UFC was in the business of giving title shots to fighters near the end of their careers, why not have his final match be against Bisping? The fight itself was built around two things. Bisping hitting Henderson with every striking tool that he had available, and Henderson threatening to end Bisping's title reign with his overhand right. This wasn't a technical kickboxing match or a wrestling battle jockeying for position. It was Bisping trying to outstrike Henderson and not get knocked out like the last time. Bisping's constant fainting and newfound left hook helped defuse a lot of Henderson's offense, but it didn't always go perfectly. The problem started when Bisping thought Henderson was going to retreat and stood out too long in the open or started to move in with his straight punches, not realizing that Henderson's right hand was still cocked and ready to launch. Fortunately for Bisping, he does have one other characteristic that hasn't been talked about yet. Heart. It's a nebulous term and it varies in description from person to person, but no matter how much damage Bisping takes, as long as he's still awake and moving, he'll continue to try and do what he's supposed to be doing, getting back on his bicycle and volume striking, and staying light on his feet is something Bisping can do in his sleep, and against Henderson the second time around, he didn't forget it. Hell, even a flying knee from Silva landing flush on his jaw didn't keep him from forgetting what was working, and there was no way Bisping was going to lose in front of his home country to someone 8 years his senior. Bisping kept up the pace and added in some nice high kicks to keep Henderson upright before blasting him with punches again, winning a comfortable unanimous decision. If Bisping's career ended after this night, he may have had a storybook ending. Unfortunately, a chance to defend his title one more time against the legendary welterweight champion George St. Pierre proved too alluring not to mention the pay-per-view points the fight could generate. Even though St-Pierre was coming off a long layoff, he showed that he was the lighter fighter by landing his own jabs against Bisping at a much quicker rate. Whenever Bisping landed a jab, St-Pierre countered with the right. Bisping had a much better second round by staying disciplined and keeping his shoulders high after throwing out his jabs and only throwing it simultaneously whenever St-Pierre did. Whenever Bisping got taken down, he framed St. Pierre's head with his forearms, only to let go so St. Pierre's forehead could crash onto his raised elbows. If this sounds familiar, that's because it's the same strategy that Tony Ferguson used to cut up Kevin Lee when he took him down in their title fight. It's not pretty, but it does make fighters think twice before committing another takedown. I try not to bring this up at all, but it can't be denied that Bisping fought the last five years of his career with a huge handicap he was clinically blind in his right eye. After suffering a detached retina at the hands and feet of Vitor Belfort, Bisping managed to somehow clear medical exams and got clearance to continue competing. This meant that whenever an opponent threw a strike that came from Bisping's right side, he would have a much more difficult time catching it in time. St. Pierre took advantage of this and threw a left hook after abandoning a takedown attempt. That punch dropped Bisping and gave St. Pierre the opportunity he needed to pounce on his back and sink in a rear naked choke, becoming the new UFC middleweight champion. But there is another aspect to this fight that is often overlooked. GSP held on to Bisping's shorts to keep him on the ground, something he's done throughout his career. When Bisping tried to stand up, GSP held onto it 
until it snapped the drawstrings on Bisping's cup. This caused a stop in the action, which allowed GSP to catch his breath, as it was later revealed that GSP was fighting with an illness. Without a resolution for what to do with the cup, Bisping fought with the cup inserted into his athletic jockey. This was a major distraction for Bisping and was knocked down shortly after the fight resumed. In an ill-advised move, Bisping accepted a short-notice fight against Kelvin Gastelum just a few weeks later in China. In less than a round, Bisping swung his right hand only to get countered by a left hook. If there's a god out there, he has a pretty twisted sense of humor. The left hook giveth and the left hook taketh. It's a tragedy that Bisping ended his career on the heel of back-to-back losses while going blind in one eye. He never got the respect he deserved during his career, but when it was all said and done, it can't be denied that Bisping was one of the best fighters in the middleweight division. He was proof that even if things weren't going your way, there's always tomorrow and to continue perfecting your craft. Ian Freeman made history by becoming the first British fighter in the UFC back in March 2000, but he never came close to winning the title. 16 years after Freeman's debut, Bisping shocked the world and became champion. More than being an MMA inspiration in England, one could argue that he is more of an inspiration to all veteran fighters out there who now know you don't have to be the best to be champion. Sometimes, You just need one hell of a year. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content and along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a 5-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye.